Please be seated. We had a cancellation, so I'm doing a little double duty this morning, but let's, now let's bring our cares, our concerns, the weights of this world before our Heavenly Father. Uh, Father God in heaven, um, we do come to you because you are the God who hears us and, and, and listens to us and who provides for his children. You do ask us to pray to you, to ask for our daily bread, because you are the God who does sustain us. And so we know that if we can pray to you about even the most mundane things, we can pray to you about the greatest things. You are the God who does all that we can think and even beyond what we can think. Father, this morning, uh, we want to lift up our country in particular. Not uh, necessarily the politics, however important those might be. Not necessarily the crime, however that might be. Not the social ills and issues, however important those might be. But we pray for our nation's spiritual state. Father, we pray for a new great awakening on our country. We pray as we move toward closing out 2022 and into 2023 that we would see in the new year great things done in the name of Jesus Christ, that his gospel would flourish in this land that knees would bow before King Jesus, not in word, not in name, but in action by sincere hearts. Father, we pray that such revival would spring up from surprising places. We pray that revival would spring up among are so many immigrant communities, those who come to this nation seeking refuge from places where they are unsafe from political violence, where they're unsafe from religious violence, where they are unsafe from gangs and disease and natural disasters. And so they come here for stability, thinking that they might find economic prosperity. Whether they find that here or not, in the relative peace that they seek, Father, help them to find a greater peace, a peace that passes understanding. May they hear and know the gospel and, and from these immigrant communities, whether fleeing from the Ukraine, or fleeing from Guatemala, or fleeing from Nepal, or Bhutan, or fleeing from North Korea, or China, and all of the places that send refugees to our shores, Father. From the Middle East, would they hear the Esau 
Jesus is not merely a prophet, but he is Lord and God over all. And with the modicum of freedom of speech that we offer here, would you allow that to let your gospel go to ears that would not have heard had they stayed where they were? And so may they in hearing so believe. And in believing, would you build your church to the glory of Jesus Christ? And Father, maybe even through these communities, would you humble, humble those of us who trace our roots here for generations and enrich our churches and remind us that your church has been here so much longer than America. Remind us that your church is so much different than our nation. Maybe build even here a church that looks something like your heavenly kingdom. Father, we pray that every false version of Christianity that flourishes in this country, and we know that our country in its short history has had its amazing ability to expand false versions of Christianity, would be torn down by revival of love and passion for the true gospel of grace, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, bought by the merits of Christ on the cross alone. Father, would you do this and bring revival in our own hearts, even here at Gateway, that we might become more passionate to speak the name of Jesus, to even spark revival here in Cleveland, Start with us. Start with our hearts, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have a, a guest speaker, so to speak, but, but one of our members, Ryan Miller, is going to be preaching for us uh, this morning. So uh, very excited to have him come up. So Ryan's going to join us. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning I'm going to be preaching from uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 17 through 24. Uh, if you have the Bibles that we have here under the seats, that's page 620. Um, if you don't know where that 1 Corinthians is, it's towards the end of the New Testament. Um, so if you'll join with me, I'm going to read uh, from 1 Corinthians only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, 
but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So let me open this morning with a question. Um, if someone, what do you, you think it means to be a Clevelander? Um, if someone were to ask you, what is, if there's anything unique about people from the land, uh, would you have any answers? How would you let them know? Uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully the first uh, response would be that, in my opinion at least, the land is not a great nickname, and nobody, that's why nobody here actually really uses it. Um, and hopefully you also know that, yes, the uh, river did catch on fire here once, but that is the most overused joke of all time, and everybody here is sick of hearing it. Um, but are we united by anything? Is there anything that like is uh, uniting with, with Cleveland people? Um, maybe you know we're united by like our long-suffering sports fandom. But you know, at least for me, I feel like that kind of ended when the ca- with the Cavs in 2016 when they won. Um, and now we're even kind of split on whether or not we st- should still root for the Browns. Um, so maybe it's just if you live here, you know that it's a pretty affordable, decent place to live with pretty good food and more uh, cultural and artistic history than you might think if you haven't been here. Um, or maybe our identity is just that uh, at least we're not Detroit, which is maybe the second most overused joke in Cleveland. Um, but if we... Well, think about what does it mean to be a Christian in that same sense. Um, I hope if you've been attending church for a while, you, you know, like, the spiritual answers to that question. You know, if you're a Christian, it means repentance from sin and believing in Christ as your Savior. Um, but are there any outward cultural signs that make us Christians, um, or at least appear to be a Christian? Uh, if you're like me, maybe it's that you're, uh, or if you not like me, but like where I grew up. Maybe it's that your kids only watch Veggie Tales, uh, or maybe the only app you're on is Christian Mingle, uh, or maybe you just use the word fellowship rather than hang out. Um, but I think if if a mainstream movie like Spider Man can make a joke about someone dressing like a cool youth pastor, then there there is definitely some sort of cultural marker that is makes someone a Christian, or at least appear to be. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that churches can imprint cultural expectations on the people that attend them or visit them, um, even if they don't make those things a requirement. Um, that maybe is just something as simple as, like, how you dress, or it might be something more, like, in, ingrained. Um, maybe you grew up in a church that had an unhealthy view of marriage um, that's, like, basically necessary to live a completely fulfilled life, um, especially if you were a woman. Um, or maybe it's um, a political culture in a church. Maybe some churches will even outright tell you if you don't vote a certain way, they don't really want you to go there. Um, I think most of us, especially if you're like me and you grew up in a church, you probably carry with you some sort of cultural expectation about what it means to be a Christian. And I'm, I'm hoping that those things are tied to the gospel and what we have learned from church history um, rather than our own expectations or preferences. 
Uh, but what about when there was no church history? Uh, if you think about it, first century churches had no Christian norms or behaviors to look back on. You know, they were the first Christian churches. Um, and that could leave them unsure about how their own lives and culture will fit into a Christian perspective. Um, they could maybe look back on Jewish history, which is where Jesus came from, um, but that also might raise a lot of questions, especially if you weren't Jewish yourself. So I think that's what Paul is addressing here in this letter to the church at Corinth. Um, he wants to help them see what changes are good uh, and what changes are not necessary for them. Um, the verse just before our passage today, uh, in the, at the first part of chapter 7, um, Paul has outlined that marriage is not necessary to live a fulfilled Christian life. In fact, it might be a good thing uh, if you remain single out of service to Christ. Um, but if you do come to faith as a wife or husband, then you should live out your faith within your marriage, even if your spouse isn't a believer. Um, so regardless of whether the Christians in Corinth were coming to Christ in marriage or singleness, their calling is to live for Christ wherever he has called them. Um, so after discussing marriage, now we come to our passage, uh, and Paul turns to some cultural topics that would have been relevant to the church in Corinth. And Paul wants them to understand that the church can serve God in whatever state he has called them. Be that if they are a Gentile or a Jew, if they're a slave or free, he wants them to know that the good news is freely available to all of them. And so I, th I just want to draw out three things from these verses. Um, I think that we see the gospel is greater than in our world. So we see, first, I think that the gospel is greater than our ethnicity or culture. Um, second, the gospel is greater than our social status. And then three, the gospel is greater than our sinful hearts. Sorry, let me just adjust this a little bit. So I think um, if you look at the New Testament, we can really see that the biggest ethnic and cultural difference that caused a lot of division in many of the early churches was the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the way, main ways we see that come up is the topic of circumcision. Um, and I know circumcision probably doesn't seem like a super culturally relevant topic to us today, uh, hopefully. Um, but for a Christian in the early church, it would have probably been a more sensitive issue, so to speak. Um, but many of the Christians in the early church were Jewish. Um, so for a Jew, this circumcision was central to their culture and to who they were as God's chosen people. So they might not even think twice about requiring it of a Gentile who comes into the church. Um, it's just what you do in order to signify that you are God's people. It might even be offensive to them to suggest otherwise. Um, because throughout their history as a people, that was part of what made them distinct and a distinct culture and people. And that's, I think, probably why we see in verse 17 that Paul mentions that this is an issue he addresses in all of the churches. Uh, it would have been an issue that probably was on people's minds. Even for a church like Corinth that probably didn't have a large Jewish population, Paul still knows that this is something that he should address before it might become a problem. You know, if you think about it, it's sort of like Paul is like creating his PowerPoint uh, before he goes out on his mission trips, and it's like, slide one, circumcision not required. Slide two, uncircumcision, also not required, or maybe even possible. Um, 
But what, why, why is the change, I guess? Why, why does Paul make this you know, break from tradition? And I think you know, Paul says from a Christian standpoint, circumcision means nothing, but instead that it is keeping the commandments of God that matters. And now at first glance, I think we might just you know, nod our heads to that and think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but to a first century Jew, I think we have to realize that that phrase might be very confusing, if not just like outright contradictory. Because isn't circumcision itself one of command, the God's commandments, going all the way back to Abraham and the start of their people? Um, God specifically had instituted it as a symbol of his covenant with his people. It reminded them of their unique calling. Um, so what does Paul mean? I think to understand um, the apparent contradiction we see here, we have to look at what he says elsewhere in the New Testament about this topic. Um, which is something I think you see quite a bit in the book of Romans. And if you really want to understand how Jesus fits in with the laws and requirements of the Old Testament, I think you should just read the whole book. Um, but today, I'm just going to read from uh, Romans 2, 25 to 29. Um, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Um, and I'm just going to read briefly on the, what he says about this topic. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised must keep the law. Sorry, but he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I think what Paul is saying here is that if we want to be a follower of our Heavenly Father, that just goes beyond a surgical procedure. Um, The children of Israel were only in the Old Testament, we're only able to approach God through a priest or prophet. And that's because God's dwelling place was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So while they were God's people, the law was a constant reminder of their unworthiness and uncleanness before God. Um, and, but, but for us, because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we now have his spirit living within us. What transforms us into God's people isn't a physical procedure, it's a heart procedure. And thankfully, not one we have to rely on the Cleveland Clinic for. Um, That was just for Jameson. Um, It's our hearts that are circumcised and make us a new people. Uh, Our heart goes from being just for ourselves to being for our creator and king. Um, And that change of heart gives us a new spiritual master. That's Jesus. So to require circumcision would have actually been to add to the gospel. Because what makes the gospel good news is that it's a free gift that's offered to all people. What the, so I think when we look at the Old Testament, what it's pointing us to was a need for something that's greater than ourselves or anything that we can do on our own. Um, all the customs, rituals, and sacrifices that they made could never make the people truly right before God. We could never truly heal our own sinful hearts on our own. And that's why we see their, circum- their sacrifices have to be offered over and over again. And so I think that inadequacy points us towards Christ's sufficiency for us today. He is the high priest and sacrifice all in one. 
And all that's required of us is to accept him as Savior and Lord. So we no longer rely on our own works or religious practices or traditions to be right before God. All we need to do is wholly trust in him. So God's chosen people or his church are now those who come to believe in him as son, or come to believe in his son, um, and our brothers and sisters together in that. And our righteousness is now found in Christ, not ourselves. So I I guess, what does this mean then for the rest of the Old Testament law? Do we just kind of throw that all out as well? And I I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Um, We see Jesus, when he was on earth, he assured his followers that he would offer us, what he would offer us would fulfill his law, the law of the Old Testament, rather than discard it. And if we look at what he taught us about the law and the commandments of God, we see that he taught his followers that this, our sin problem goes to beyond just our outward actions, which is really what the law was dictating. So it's not just not injuring or killing someone that matters. It's not hating them with your heart. It's not just not physically cheating on your spouse that matters. It's not lusting after another person in your heart. So Christ calls us to just reform more than just our actions, but to reform our hearts as well. Um, but we, I think we all know we can't do that on our own. We need God to work in us. And I think that's really what it means to have a spiritual circumcision. And so we see the Corinthians' call to righteousness goes beyond even that of the Old Testament. Um, each of them now had the Spirit of God changing them from the inside. And that was something that even the Jews didn't have before Christ. And so that gives the Corinthians and also us an even greater responsibility to live a new and holy life. Because our calling now goes beyond just our actions, because we have to live a spirit-filled life. And if our, I think if our lives have been truly transformed by the gospel and the spirit, they should bear the fruit of that repentance. So I think that is how we can see Jesus fulfilled the law rather than destroying it. Because he gives us the righteousness the law couldn't, and we can't attain on our own. So I, I think you know, circumcision probably doesn't seem like a super relevant topic to us today. Um, but I think if you look at this passage, it should also prompt us to ask maybe in what ways we may add to the gospel. You know, what may be the cultural norms of Christ- American Christianity that we maybe push on others without even thinking about it? Um, these can be things that we might not make an outright requirement, but might make it difficult for people to join our community if they don't feel like they're a part of them. Um, maybe, maybe we just see people as so different than us that we don't even bother to share the gospel because we don't think they would possibly be attracted to it. Um, recently, I, was watching a, I watched a really interesting video uh, on the life of Hudson Taylor. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Hudson Taylor was a British missionary to China in the late 19th century. And that was really wasn't an easy job uh, because the Chinese at the time were rightfully very distrustful of Western people, uh, especially the British, because they had just lost a really brutal war to them. And so British missionaries really struggled to find any success at all in reaching the Chinese people. Um, and <coughs> Taylor, the video was talking about, uh, grew frustrated with his fellow missionaries who really just seemed more interested in spending time with the British people who were in China and didn't really seem as interested in reaching the Chinese people themselves. Um, because and I think that's because these missionaries felt uncomfortable 
in a different land and culture, and the Chinese people also felt uncomfortable around them. And so for the sake of his mission, Taylor made the kind of radical decision at the time to start to assimilate himself into Chinese culture. So he wore Chinese clothes and cut his hair in the same way that they did. And I think that's because he recognized that his culture, even though that wasn't necessarily wrong, was an obstacle to these people hearing the gospel. And so in order to witness to them, he needed to meet them wherever they were. And that, I think that mirrors what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, we must become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. And though it still wasn't easy, um, Taylor's mission would end up bringing a lot of souls to Christ in China. And that leaves a heritage that you can still see even to this day. And I think that's because the gospel is really the only thing that's going to transform people's hearts and lives, regardless of whatever culture you're preaching it to. Um, And when we add our own expectations and preferences to that, we put obstacles in people's way to hearing it or accepting it. And so I think we should trust in the Spirit to do the work of the transforming people's lives, not ourselves. And Christians may look very different in different parts of the world, but our internal purpose is still all the same, and that's to glorify God. So let's be mindful of how we treat our fellow believers or people that may be new to the church and what expectations we put on them. Um, You don't necessarily have to be a charismatic personality to be a spiritual person. Um, And just because someone comes to church every Sunday and is very serious and unemotional doesn't mean that they're spiritually disciplined. Um, Similarly, just because someone is a business leader or a community leader doesn't mean they're more spiritually mature than someone who may not be doing so well financially, but is really spiritually rich. I think it's a very human tendency to associate material growth with spiritual growth. And so we need to be careful that what we think of our fellow believers comes from God's word and not just our own uh, preferences or expectations. So let's also, along with that, be mindful that our encouragement and discipleship is rooted in Christ's image rather than our own. Take another drink of water. So Paul then, um, if you look back at the passage, Paul then moves from uh, one lighthearted topic in circumcision to another one, uh, slavery. Uh, And depending on what translation you're looking at, you may not see the word slave in any of these verses. Um, You might see just the word bondservant or servant. But I think those effectively all mean the same thing in this context. Um, some translations will just use the word like bondservant um, because they want to hi- they want to highlight notable differences between what slavery meant in the first century and what slavery really means to us from American history. Um, and for sure, it's yeah, I'll admit it's definitely not the easiest topic to dive into. Um, if you're like me, you probably want Paul's writings on slavery to just be like. Slavery is bad, the end. And that's, that's about it. Um, because, you know, as Americans, we are all very familiar with how evil and destructive slavery has been. And, but we really don't, we don't see Paul do that here. Um, and I don't think that's because he's morally indifferent. Um, I think it's because he's not just writing an abstract letter about the topic, um, but rather he's writing to a church that was made up 
of probably many slaves. Um, the church in Corinth didn't really need to be told about any the dehumanization of slavery or the wrongs with it because they were very familiar with it. Um, it was part of their day-to-day lives. Um, the city of Corinth that Paul's writing to was a major trading port in the slave economy of Rome. Uh, and some commentaries that I was reading estimated that up to a third of the population of the city would have been slaves. So in all likelihood, they would have made up a sizable portion of the church. Um, and we see kind of hints of that in 1 Corinthians 1 at the start of the letter, um, where he writes about the church there this way in verses 26 and 27. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Paul here is speaking, he's speaking to the lowest classes of people in the city. Um, You know, slavery in the Roman Empire was different um, from like the racial chattel slavery that we saw practiced in America. You know, American slavery is based pretty much entirely on race uh, and was the need for, or the desire, not the need, for free labor, whereas slavery in Corinth wasn't really so much about skin color, and slaves had many, many different types of jobs. Um, But the one thing that was the same uh, is that slaves were property of their masters, and they were people that had effectively no rights in society. And so they would just naturally be regarded as lesser people, I'd say lower-class citizens, but really they weren't even given that kind of a privilege. Um, The church that Paul's writing to might even be wondering if it's possible for a slave to be a Christian. Do they, can they be a Christian without the approval of whoever their master is? And so what Paul is telling the church there is, yes, you may be a slave, but that doesn't make you any less of a person in the body of Christ. Your social status or wherever you are in life, is not a barrier in the kingdom of God. Rather, it's your love for Christ, despite whatever your low position is, that's a shame to your masters who do not see a need to repent. Um, They believe you, they are your master, but they are still slaves to the sin that you have been freed from. And so each and every person in the church at Corinth could find lasting freedom in Christ, regardless of whatever their earthly circumstances are. And that's not to say that those earthly circumstances are irrelevant or unimportant or that God doesn't care about them. Um, I think that's why we see Paul commend them that if they have the opportunity to gain their freedom, that they should take it. Um, One notable difference between uh, American slavery and slavery in the Roman Empire was that Roman slaves could sometimes uh, enter into that voluntarily. Because if you're in a society that doesn't have any social safety net at all, um, selling your work or yourself for food and shelter might just be your last resort. Um, and along with that, slaves were much off, more often given their fr- the opportunity to gain their freedom then. So they might have to work it all, they might be deemed to have worked long enough to gain their freedom, or they might be able to pay their master back and gain their freedom, or maybe their service just was no longer necessary. Um, but I think that's why we see, we see that Paul can encourage them to take that opportunity if it is available. Um, because Paul notes that as a Christian, we really only have one master, and that's our creator. 
our lives shouldn't be bound to the whims or wishes of another sinful human being. A slave could be subject to abuse by his master, or he might be asked to do any number of evil acts in service of him. And that puts them in a very difficult position of deciding who they're going to obey, their master here on earth or their conscience. Um, And as a Christian, we all have a higher calling to serve a God who's above everything, even the richest person of this world. And it's a very good thing for us to have our freedom to serve Christ however he wills for us. Because we serve a God who paid a much greater price for us than any amount of money that any person could accumulate. That price was his son. And so Paul, I think, ends this passage by reminding us that our freedom in Christ is not contingent on whatever our ethnicity, cultural, or social status might be. But instead, that he says that we can remain in the position we were called. And what Paul means by that, I don't think he means that we just have to not change anything about our earthly circumstances. He's not saying that if God called you and you were a waiter or a yoga instructor that you then have to remain in that position forever. Um, But ultimately what we do have a responsibility to change is our hearts. And maybe that heart change leads us to a new life situation. Um, What Paul is saying is that you can serve God in whatever place you are. And our focus is now on him and what he wants for our lives rather than ourselves. So maybe you do get offered a promotion at work or a new job opportunity. We should really look through the lens of how those decisions are going to affect how we serve God contently here on the earth. Maybe that new opportunity gives us a chance to glorify him more. Or maybe the added stress and busyness, as uh, Chris talked about in his prayer today, is going to detract from our faith and our ability to serve God contently. I think, um, especially in, I know in my experience, the corporate world is usually very focused on advancement. Um, you know, if you don't like your job, well, maybe a higher status, a higher salary is going to satisfy you. Or if, you know, doing, if you're doing well at your job, how about you do become a manager and stop doing the work you enjoyed and just go to nonstop meetings? Um, or manage people who don't like their job. Uh, and if nothing else, you can just always look forward to retirement. Um, but I think we all know that, you know, true contentment isn't going to be found in whatever your position is on the org chart at work or the balance in your 401k. Um, You can serve God as an office worker in 2022 or as a slave in ancient Rome. And God doesn't need you to be super wealthy or successful in order to live a fulfilling Christian life, uh, no matter what you might see on, like, TV or social media. In fact, I mean, if we really look at the New Testament, I think we see that wealth and status can be the biggest idol for a lot of people, keeping them from trusting God more. And so serving God... Where we are called means that we find freedom for whatever expectations or idols the world may offer us. And that's because Christ freed us from a master that we couldn't escape, and that ma- the master of sin. And now we can serve him as our new master, someone who knows what is better for us than we do for ourselves. Apart from him, we're just kind of left to seek whatever the world offers us. But each of Each of those things is just going to inevitably lead us back to that same hopeless state that we've started in. You know, I think often we come to the end of the year and we look at the next calendar year and we put, you know, our hope kind of on whatever big things or events are to come. 
I know I kind of naturally do that. So maybe it's like a, maybe it's a big vacation, or you know, a new season for whatever your favorite sports team is, or some other big life event. And then when that's over, you know, we're content for a little bit, but that just kind of then leaves us waiting for whatever that next big thing is that's going to hit our schedule. And that's because none of our jobs, plans, or hobbies is really going to offer us lasting satisfaction. I know for me, there isn't much joy to be found in living just weekend to weekend. It just kind of leaves you wanting more. Um, And really, the luxury of living that way is only really possible because of the wealth and comfort we have in modern life. If you're a slave in Corinth, you really can only look forward to whatever luxuries your master is going to allow you to have, if any. Um, So I think if we want to see true freedom, it's we have to recognize that Christ, only Christ offers us the freedom from that emptiness and guilt that comes with sin. And now we are free to serve him who's created us for joy, a joy that is only going to be experienced through a relationship with him. Because we can serve a God who loved us enough to pay it all for him, pay it all for us, sorry. So as a church, I would just close by encouraging you that, you know, as we go about our lives in Cleveland, remember that you know, no matter how people may seem on the outside, you pay attention and be invested in their spiritual well-being. Um, because, you know, the most put-together person on the outside might not be doing so well internally. And I, I know when I came to Cleveland after college, you know, I got a pretty good job, and I was really excited. You know, I'd never lived in a city before, and there was a lot of newness to everything. But after, you know, about a year or two, that newness starts to wear off. You know, my job started to feel a little stale and unfulfilling, and it's probably hard to believe in the insurance industry. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> I think there are probably a lot of younger people in my generation that, you know, hit a point where they feel the same way. When you're in high school, you know, you can't wait to graduate and get to college. When you're in college, you really look forward to, you know, I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to have an income. And then, you know, when you get out of job, college, maybe you get a job, and then after a little bit, you go, okay, what's next? You know, what am I supposed to look forward to now? And you know, one of the more sad things I've heard is people my age talking about how they can't wait for retirement. I, mean, I think we all know there has to be more to life than that because, no offense to any retired people, I'm sure it's great. Um, but we aren't guaranteed tomorrow, you know, as, a, as someone age 30, we aren't guaranteed tomorrow, let alone 30 years from now. So we can't just live for that moment. Um, and life just isn't ab- just about whatever that next milestone is. Um, it's about how we can serve God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, and that's what is really important, um, because he offers us a joy that isn't dependent on where we come from or how much stuff we have, and he's given us a spiritual family to encourage and help each other through those difficult times in life. I know I'm grateful that I had this church family, you know, walking beside me in the years since I got out of school. Um, And maybe your current circumstances, whatever they may be, mean you need to rely a little more on God and your church family. And that's what we should be here for. Uh, Or maybe God has blessed you with spiritual wisdom and strength. Then you should use those things to help people around you. Um, Because ultimately, we don't get to choose where we are in life when God has called us. What we really just have to decide is what we are going to do with the time that is given us. All right, would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you that you are a God who 
um, calls us, has called each one of us, regardless of where we are, we're in life, regardless of our circumstances, and that we can have confidence that we can serve you um, no matter the difficulties of life, that you are with us, um, that you are there to encourage us and build us up, and that we are ultimately thankful that we can rely on your son's righteousness, not our own, that we are no longer dependent on um, yearly sacrifices or um, traditions or a priest to go in to a temple on our behalf, but we are thankful for your high priest that has come down and made a sacrifice on our behalf once and for all, for all uh, eternity. And so we praise you for that. I just pray that you would um, help us to reflect on how we may add to your gospel uh, in any way, and that you would help us to be conscious to rely wholly on you and not on our own righteousness. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, cool. So uh, now that's over, please stay with us as we sing one more song. (laughs) 